Hello, my name's Alex. Um, I'm reading the Bible today, uh, Jonah chapter 3 and 4. Last week we looked at 1 and 2, and uh, just to refresh your memory of the narrative so far, Jonah was commanded by the Lord to go and prophesy against Nineveh, and instead he ran away. He was swallowed by a big fish. Uh, Inside that he had time to think and repented, and then the, th- the fish uh, threw him up onto dry land. Now we read in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them drink or eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. 
And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Controversial question. Who do you never, ever want to see in heaven? It's a tough question, isn't it? Um, Well, for one woman, that question became very real, very fast. In a church basement after World War II, she'd just given a talk to a group of Germans. When we confess our sins, she said, God cast them into the deepest ocean. They're gone forever. As the Germans left the church, a man made a beeline for her. He was large and bald, dressed in a grey overcoat and holding a brown hat. Only two years before, however, he'd been wearing something far more sinister, the blue uniform of a Nazi prison guard, specifically a prison guard at Ravensbrück, Germany's largest concentration camp for women. The same camp the woman knew all too well. She and her sister had been in prison there during the war. Their crime? Hiding 800 Jews from the Nazis. The woman later wrote, the memories came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. A sister, sadly, who would never see freedom again, let alone justice. The man reached out for a handshake A fine message, Fraulein, he said. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. The woman hesitated from taking his hand. How did this man, who had done nothing, nothing, while women were forced into labour gangs, tortured, sterilised and raped, how did he deserve God's mercy? And I, the woman, wrote who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. The man continued. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear from your lips as well. Fraulein, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? But friends, if you haven't heard that story before, it belongs to an amazing Christian woman called Corey Ten Boom. And that scene is straight from her autobiography, The Hiding Place. We're starting with her story today because she and Jonah encountered a similar problem. Both had incredibly wicked enemies. Both had to deliver a message of mercy to those enemies. And both struggled when their enemies did the unthinkable and actually asked for that same mercy. Now, most of us haven't gone through the trials of a Jonah or the trauma of a Corey Ten Boom, but we do know what it's like to be double-minded about mercy. On the one hand, we love being forgiven by God. We're incredibly grateful for his mercy towards us. We can't get enough of it. But on the other hand, when it comes to forgiving our enemies, people who have done the worst things to us, the most horrible things to us, that's when we draw the line and say, no way, anyone but them. So why are we so double-minded about mercy? 
And isn't it better just to ignore our enemies and, and let God sort them out? God even punish them? Well, friends, to answer these questions, we're going to learn from our passage three things. One, God's mercy restores us. Two, God's mercy is for the undeserving. And three, God's mercy is just. So first up, God's mercy restores us. Now, chapter three opens with three remarkable words, and I I wonder if you spotted them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. And it's remarkable because, as we saw back in chapters 1 and 2, here we have a prophet who did everything to run away from the Lord. Jonah basically gives the Lord the middle finger when he's asked to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and preach against its wickedness. Why? Because he suspected that God's warning would actually scare people into repenting. God's judgment always comes with God's mercy. And Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. And so when Jonah does run away, the Lord sends a massive storm to warn him and a giant fish to save him from drowning. Now we learn in chapter 3 verse 2 that the Lord asked Jonah to do the same thing as he did back in chapter 1. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. But why is that important? Well, think about it for a moment. It's like your boss handing you a plane ticket to a conference in Pakistan, but instead you go to, say, Las Vegas. Over in Las Vegas, you blow all your money on poker machines and alcohol and you end up in jail. And after a while, you realise that you have to ring up your boss because he's the only one who can rescue you. But rather than abandoning you, your boss pays for your plane ticket back home He calls you into his office, hands you a new plane ticket to Pakistan, then calls an Uber to take you back to the airport. The only thing he tells you is, go and do a good job. Now, no boss would ever do that, would they? Mercy would be the last thing coming out of their mouth. But that's what God's doing here with Jonah, isn't it? He's not yelling and screaming and thundering from heaven as he has every right to. Instead, God says nothing, nothing about Jonah's rebellion and just sends him back out on the road again. He doesn't even strip him of being a prophet. God sees Jonah as the right man for the job. In other words, God restores him. He restores him. And do you see that? Do you see how extraordinary God's mercy is in this scene? When when someone we love hurts us or betrays us, we normally put a red line through their name forever, correct? We refuse to see them, we refuse to, to take their phone calls, we try not to even think about them. But what does God do instead? He puts a line through your sinfulness, not your name. He doesn't hold a grudge, he doesn't expect you to work your way back into his good books. Instead, he picks you up dusts you off and sends you back out into the world. He restores you. He restores your relationship with him. He restores your life with purpose. And he restores your worth. Not just your self-worth, but more importantly, your worth in his eyes. It's just as the psalmist writes, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now imagine for a moment if God did the opposite, that God was petty and spiteful like the rest of us when we were wronged. He wouldn't have saved Jonah. He wouldn't have even sent the great fish. And if he did, a cruel and merciless God would have left his prophet on the shoreline dripping with guilt and shame. 
Jonah would have spent the rest of his life trying to win back God's favour. He'd be on a hamster wheel working his tail off but getting nowhere. And that's what happens in other religions. People have this need to earn favour, to earn mercy. It's what our hearts naturally tend towards. But the real Lord, the God of the Bible, our merciful God, our loving God, he fully restores us and he fully forgives us. Even after we do the dumbest things, we are assured a fully restored relationship with him. And that's what God does with Jonah at the start of our passage. He restores him. He trusts him to go off to Nineveh again, which Jonah happily obeys. The question then becomes, what does Jonah do with this mercy? Which leads us to our second topic. God's mercy is for the undeserving. So where does it all go wrong? Jonah starts off well. He marches into the city and begins preaching, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And amazingly, Jonah witnesses something truly epic, something that every pastor can only dream about. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. An entire city of 120,000 people, 120,000 people from the greatest to the least, puts on sackcloth and repents. And we're, we're talking about like the population of Darwin here, all turning away from their sins in a matter of days. And that would be just amazing to see, wouldn't it? Remarkably, even the animals joining, which sounds strange, but a, a modern example would be like seeing horses wearing black at a funeral procession. And wouldn't you want to be a fly on the wall? Wouldn't you want to be there and watching it unfold? In fact, wouldn't you love to see that happen now? So why do the Ninevites do it? Well, the answer comes in verse 9. Who knows, the king of Nineveh says, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Even this pagan king recognises that God's judgment always comes with God's mercy. Now, if you were an Israelite at the time and hearing this story... For the first time, your jaw would be on the ground. You wouldn't be excited at these 120,000 Ninevites suddenly repenting. You'd be up in arms. There's no way that these Gentiles deserve God's mercy. They were Israel's mortal enemies. They were murderers and sadists, idolaters and pagans, warmongers and slavers. They were part of a ruthless superpower who loved nothing but to pick a fight. You'd be wanting to see their utter destruction, not hoping to s that they'd receive God's mercy. Mercy was for Israel and Israel alone. And the shock of this is captured at the beginning of verse of chapter four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And the word angry here in the Hebrew is directly linked to the concept to burn. Jonah is burning inside. So much so that verse 2, he reacts by unloading both barrels on the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is this what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. 
Or to put it another way, I knew it. What a waste of time. I was right in running away from you. You are always going to forgive these people, Lord, weren't you? You're too soft, Lord. And if that's not bad enough, Jonah then finishes his tantrum, verse 3, by basically saying, if you want to be merciful to these degenerates, Lord, then fine over my dead body. Now, on one level, Jonah is right. The Ninevites don't deserve God's mercy. But the irony is, neither does Jonah. Firstly, he conveniently forgets that the only reason he is alive himself is because the Lord saved him from his own wickedness. But secondly, and this is what we always overlook when we read this passage, Jonah's anger itself is an affront to the Lord. Jonah hasn't murdered anyone or hurt anyone, but his heart is full of hate and anger and a desire for his enemies to be dead. He's so enraged, he wants them wiped out, and if he could, he would. Do you notice that? Jonah hates the Ninevites so much that his is no longer a righteous anger, it's a sinful anger. It's lingered way too long and poisoned his heart. Jonah cannot be calmed even though the Lord three times tries to do exactly that, by asking, is it right for him to be angry? Verses 4, 9, and 11. And it's a trip that, it is a trap that we need to avoid ourselves. And that trap is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness happens when we tell ourselves, I'm better than other people. I'm right, they're wrong, I'm good, they're bad, I'm forgiven, but those people... They could never deserve God's mercy. They're beyond saving. And this happens when we have an overconfidence in our own goodness. Sure, we're still sinners, but as the American Presbyterian minister Timothy Keller likes to describe it, we divide sin into little sins and big sins. We're okay because our sins are little sins, and they don't really hurt anyone. But our enemies, they're the biggest sinners because they hurt us or other people. They're the bad people. And so we end up justifying our sinful actions, explaining away our sinful actions by comparing ourselves to other people. We walk around with this superiority complex. And you only have to go online and watch the news to see how widespread and ugly that kind of thinking is right across the world. The famous 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon once warned, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And so Jonah reverts back to his old ways from chapters 1 and 2. Do you remember what that was? He thinks he knows better than God. He thinks he's a better judge than God. He's, he's like a, a, a nightclub bouncer blocking the front doors of heaven, deciding who's in and who's out. And for Jonah, the Ninevites are definitely out. Now, if you fall into that trap, if, if, if you realise that you have self-righteousness in your heart, there is a simple solution. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus on the cross and ask yourself, do I deserve his mercy? And do I have the right to stop others receiving that same mercy? when we look to Jesus, when we look to the cross, we should both be humbled and elevated. 
The cross humbles us by reminding us that Jesus died in our place, even though we were completely undeserving of such mercy. The only thing we deserved was the wrath that God the Father poured out on God the Son for all our sinfulness. It also humbles us by reminding us there are no little sins and big sins. All sin is offensive to God, including the small ones. All of us are just as guilty and wicked as each other, and no one holds the moral high ground. The cross elevates us because Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection frees us from the eternal consequences of our sinful nature. Not only do we receive eternal life, but we are not under the dominion of sin anymore. And because of Christ's victory over sin, we do have the power to say no to sin, especially to something as destructive as anger and self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit will help us. And when we do this, when we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us and the resurrection to come, it changes us forever. We see our enemies as God sees them. Not as people who are undeserving of mercy, but people who need mercy. Do you get that? Not as people who are undeserving of mercy, but people who need mercy. All people need mercy. God wants to show mercy to all people. It's as the Lord tells Jonah in 4.11, Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? and also many animals. And what God's saying is he wants to save the lost. He wants to show them mercy. He created them. He loves them. He has hope for them, and he wants them to walk in his ways. And his challenge for Jonah is not to only join in that mission, but also to share in his compassion for the lost. And that's an enormous challenge for us as well. Our hearts are called to reflect God's mercy towards all people, even the worst ones, even our enemies. We don't sit in judgment of them. We, we point people to Jesus' mercy by sharing with them the same mercy he showed us. It's just like what the 20th century Methodist preacher D.T. Niles once said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Our final lesson is God's mercy is just. Let's go back to Corey Ten Boom for a moment. We'd left her with that prison guard stretching out his hand, asking her to forgive him. Ten Boom slowly reached out to shake it, but only after praying, Jesus, help me, I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And as she describes it, an incredible healing warmth came over her body. She cried, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She'd later write, for a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Christ's mercy had not only saved that prison guard, but it, his mercy had saved Ten Boom from a life of bitterness. He had restored her. Now after this, Ten Boom thought forgiving other people would be a breeze, but she was wrong. She quickly discovered it was quite hard to overlook the wrongdoings of her friends who had done wrong by her. She'd forgive people but then quietly burn inside for several weeks. 
she'd forgive them again, but then wake up in the middle of the night, but still angry. Later, when she asked a Lutheran pastor for help, he answered by pointing out a window. Up in that church tower, he said, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. I believe the same true I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness, he said. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bells slowing down. Now, the problem for Jonah isn't that his bells are slowing down. He just won't let go of the rope. His grievances are ringing as loud as ever. Why? Because he wants justice. Red hot justice. The Ninevites should pay for their crimes and Jonah has no room in his heart for compassion. But the Lord desires for his people to reflect his own holy heart. And that's why we get this strange little scene involving the plant, the worm and the wind in chapter 4. God is exposing Jonah's double-mindedness. He shows Jonah what happens when his divine judgment does in fact override his mercy. And if you remember, verse 6, God starts by blessing Jonah with a large, shady plant. But when Jonah needs that shady plant the most, when he needs God's mercy the most, God takes it away. Soon, verse 8, Jonah finds himself facing the relentless judgment of God, which is personified in the sun and the scorching east wind, to the point that he wants to die. And essentially what Jonah is getting a taste of is what he wishes of the Ninevites themselves. The Lord is teaching Jonah, firstly, that God's judgment isn't something that we should desire on anyone, especially our enemies. We should only desire mercy. And as we learned last week, salvation comes from the Lord. Um, not only is he the source of salvation, but it's his driving purpose. And secondly, the, tor- the Lord is teaching us that if we desire justice for the wicked, then it's only God's mercy that spares us from receiving the justice we deserve ourselves for rebelling against him. There are no little sins or big sins. But despite all this, Jonah still wants justice. He won't be happy until the Ninevites are all wiped out. But by seeking justice, Jonah keeps overlooking one thing. God's mercy is just. The Lord is both merciful and just at the same time. For the Israelites, they sacrificed the life of animals as atonement offerings at the temple for their sins. We, as the church today, we know it through the cross. When Christ gave his life as a sacrifice for us at the cross, what happened? Again, God the Father poured out his terrifying justice on God the Son. Jesus took every insult, every blow and every nail for our wickedness, our sinfulness and our rebellion so that we could receive his mercy. And that's why it's dangerous for anyone to accuse God of not punishing sin, of being too soft. God never turns a blind eye to our sins. He never sweeps them under the carpet. He never shrugs his shoulders. Instead, he does get angry about our sin. He does get angry about injustice. He does get angry about suffering, fiercely so. He poured out all that anger 2,000 years ago on Jesus. He didn't spare one ounce of wrath. 
but we need to remember also that the Lord's justice is also coming in the future. The day of judgment is coming closer day by day for the unrepentant. He's still being merciful to us by holding off his day of judgment until the last sinner seeks his mercy. He wants as many people as possible to seek his protection and his love first. And if you're here today and you you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then there's no one stepping between you and God on that terrible day. But if you do accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then you are safe in his mercy. He's already paid the price at the cross. Friends, to finish up, God's judgment is something that we shouldn't wish on our enemies. Jesus shielding us from the judgment of God is the greatest act of love and mercy ever in the world's history. It's why we must put aside our hurts and our hates, especially towards our enemies. We, they need Christ's mercy as much as we do. And you may not feel just as being served um, in this lifetime when you have been incredibly wronged and hurt and betrayed by someone betrayed by someone beyond measure, and my heart breaks for you. But we haven't been restored by God to judge others. We've been restored to show mercy, God's mercy, God's mercy to all people, just as the same mercy he showed to us.